0: This evening's practice, or this evening's practice and uh, Dhamma Talk, is about wise concentration. And uh, beginning <clears throat> with a quote from a Tibetan teacher, uh, B. Allen Wallace. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of mind as i think all of you know <coughs> concentration plays an important role in the buddhist teaching it's one of the seven factors of enlightenment they are they are mindfulness investigation effort energy <coughs> joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, which when fully developed become the five spiritual powers. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana Without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having a bodyguard to protect him or her. (laughs) So we'll begin uh, this evening's discussion with three Pali words. Sila, samadhi, and panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtual or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom These three form the branches, or the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the changing nature, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. And dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And anatta, the impersonality of all the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one onto the final liberating insights. (coughs) In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question and then he goes on to answer it. He says, if concentration Samadhi or samata is developed what profit does it bring? And he answers his question the mind is developed if the mind is developed what profit does it bring? <coughs> all lust, all greed is abandoned and then he goes on if insight is developed what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed if wisdom is developed what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha, meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences, are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment and ease on deeper and deeper levels, more profound levels and what brings suffering, confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical discipline is the basis for developing samatha or samadhi. <clears throat> the term samata, samadhi, refers, Samatha is Samadhi is Sanskrit, refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us is the recognition of (coughs) And seeing our self-identification in relationship to our habits of attraction, which show up as greed, clinging, uh, expectation, (coughs) and attachment. And our habits of aversion, which show up as worry or resistance, anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this here and now momentary round of worldly suffering and the Pali word is samsara. these habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind (coughs) keep us far from our main goal. That of recognizing the nature of things. Excuse me a minute. So again, um, these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature, the true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, such as, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Towski Valley, <clears throat> Afghanistan, dogs, thoughts, snow, rain, feelings, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, <clears throat> your favorite restaurant, American Airlines, etc., 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 are understood, <laughs> are regarded as being without substantial essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self identity. <clears throat> In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness part the veil untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it and this occurs through the practices of sila samadhi and panya each of which are rooted in concentration and mindfulness in speaking to one of his chief disciples, Ananda, the Buddha again asks a question and then he proceeds to answer it. He says, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? Skillful virtues have Freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda. And freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose. Joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose. Rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose. Serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose. Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. (coughs) In this way, Ananda skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering, the end of suffering and in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and experience the Buddha said it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom just as the Buddha did we also need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our more difficult experiences experiences, and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and heart is synonymous with this act of learning. So this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration, the process of of gathering in, gathering together, the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily as I'm sure you well know, quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present. So that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind (coughs) lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions, as I've mentioned. And one important aspect of this (coughs) development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize and to direct the mind rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over again by whatever breezes waft in from it, from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. In light of this we can ask ourselves the question, does your mind control you or do you control your mind? So for instance an example, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath but the mind wanders off at just the slightest provocation then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned like any other skill by practice and a patient repetition and gradual development we learn the Visuddhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share just a couple of these metaphors with you. So this is the first one. The bee follows up the scent of a flower, (coughs) then dives toward the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it. Getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it and then absorbing into it. So, a metaphor for <coughs> preliminary access and absorption, concentration. Another metaphor that's offered in the Vasudhi Maga that I particularly relate to because of my <coughs> own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a very strong and yet very relaxed focus of attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining the attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of attention with one hand directly on the clay steadily holding and supporting the clay the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth up and down informing the clay, at the same time as being informed by it, as a bowl forms. Quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into deeper states of concentration the power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind. A concentrated mind. Bring, it brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. Restimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself. Strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of Samatha. I think it would be helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration calm, joy, tranquility, contentment, happiness, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, can't grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, <clears throat> if you try to concentrate, concentrate on a meditation subject such as the sensations of the in and the out-breath at the anapana spot, at the nostrils or another spot in the body and you're anxious, or worried, or filled with expectation during the process. Calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, not to be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say, even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. And it's important to note here, I feel, that this isn't about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thought is actually rooted in an attitude of aversion, an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is, we're rooted in the clarity of our intention. <clears throat> in seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other <coughs> than what is attended, intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. The mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions. Thinking that whatever it is is really, really important. During a three-month retreat uh, a number of years ago uh, that I was uh, sitting with uh, Pauwak Saito, it was a concentration retreat, I had uh, such an experience. For the first week or so, of that retreat, each day after lunch I would make myself a a fancy cup of tea I would take two or three uh, different loose teas and mix them together in a tea ball and it seemed as though it was very important and it seemed like it was quite necessary it was a necessary treat that I really needed wanted, wanted first and then of course I needed it Towards the end of this week, I noticed that there were a box of tea bags <clears throat> sitting on the counter uh, that was one of the, was the same as one of the teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. And it had been sitting there all along, but <clears throat> the mind hadn't connected uh, to it with the clear awareness up until that moment. <clears throat> so then the thought came, once I did notice it, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Is is it? Well, the answer came pretty quickly. No, no. It's not really at all important. It's just merely a habitual distraction. So from that day on, uh, I made a simple cup of tea (coughs) with the tea bag, and it was fine. I enjoyed it. What happened after this was what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of that three-month retreat, the question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much a hundred percent of the time, quite clearly, and more and more, obviously, no. And so then I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. And that's become a wholesome habit. I still uh, do that. It still comes up quite spontaneously. It's very helpful. The development of A wholesome concentration requires that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people, uh, at some point, jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. As the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm, and concentration seriously weakens all of the hindrances, seriously weakens these unwholesome states of mind. When calm and joy and tranquility, contentment and blissful happiness, peace, equanimity, these fruits of concentration practice, when they clearly manifest these unwholesome states of mind are temporarily completely eliminated as well as considerably weakened in the long run, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens and even more specifically so if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So Now taking a bit of a look at how the different factors of deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, applying the attention, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. The word for this in Pali is vitaka. With the establishment of the mind on the object, again such as the sensations of the in and out breath at the Anapanas spot in the nostril area <clears throat> or somewhere else in the body, uh, this eventually eliminates dullness, sleepiness stiffness, the sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object again such as the breath. This is called vichara in Pali and it eventually eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice and weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. the deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, bright happiness, elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of mind and heart. And the poly word for this is piti. This brings a delighted interest, interest in and liking of the object of attention, again, such as the breath. And within the developing of a deepening concentration, ill will is temporarily inhibited. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there is much, much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana. At this point, all forms of ill will are completely, temporarily inhibited. (coughs) And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, sweet, easeful happiness, the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity is not a pleasant bodily feeling at all. But a blissful, contented mental feeling. When this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, and then more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration ikagata in Pali and when this with this occurring, occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana this One pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and subtly but pervasive energy of centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, sensuous desire for anything is inhibited, is at bay. It's not at all in one's field of experience. as uh, samadhi, or concentration, develops and moves along in the states that corrupt the natural purity and the luminosity of the mind and the heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, have been very clearly let go and at least temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished, at that time, really, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. When this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and maturing of this gladness, <coughs> a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation which is sometimes uh, defined as rapture is born in us. When this joy and the knowing of it without any attachment or personal identification in those moments the body and mind eventually becomes very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility Both the more overt and subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, these are removed. They disappear in the calm and quiet of tranquility. They disappear in this serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment without any identification in those moments, this is a very important point, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment this brings this serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration and on and on it goes consequently at this point the mind and heart are very strong And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of raga. Raga being the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with greed, greed, unwholesome desire, craving, attachment, or clinging. Which is the core cause of Dukkha, the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, <coughs> an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof. That the, the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and uh, uh, protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen or will be aware of a provocative sense sense door input but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or with aversion. A similar uh, image that was often used was that of the water rolling off a lotus leaf or off the feathers of a duck. (coughs) The nature of concentration is threefold Or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. And the first of these is called Kanaka Samadhi. That's the Pali word for momentary concentration. This is the development and growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another object after another object. the development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, another object, another object, etc., one by one and ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice, essential for vipassana practice. The second type or level of concentration is called upachara samadhi or <clears throat> a more familiar access concentration or in more familiar language neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration and it can be reaccessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of jhana concentration but it's not at all an absorbed concentration meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of all other objects as does jhana. With Access concentration, upachara concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So, from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's really only through vipassana, through insight practice that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana, in our insight practice, particularly momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, and less identification, but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that's not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana or insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration might require, may very well require, many months or even uh, a number of years of single pointed practice, meditating for many hours each day. And this might be quite impractical for some people. For others, it might be possible and worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope, so to say, of Samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place. But with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what is occurring and not making something out of experience. But rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking. It said that the bodhisatta, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, "Could there be another path to enlightenment?" In reflection, with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood, appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all of the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open and even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and sparkling of the sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbell's sound rolling on and on and on amidst the sharp, strong shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and grubs, worms and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him and in his mind and heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat quite still and secluded, secluded from sensual pleasures and secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration, the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a joy, a joyful happiness, that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the Bodhisatta became filled with energy and assurance that in fact this was a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation and resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and in his evaluation of pleasure he understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared, no longer to be banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed Anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, (coughs) banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them. Or by trying to live through them, by stealing, by hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling, by trying really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, How many times, in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship? or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life. And maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that these situations or fantasies or activities or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness and ease into your life potentially a certain degree of mental strength might be gained but the light at the end of the tunnel the light of liberation can never be seen felt or known with this way as a young man in remembering his childhood experiences Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would really never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence, and detachment, that it's not only okay but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta <coughs> came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and in his case, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening. An important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed to his student Sakaka, I thought, why am I afraid that pleasure has nothing to, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka in this particular sutta, saying that uh, being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words now, Such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha uh, wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind that's made up. And often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or isn't supposed to be. What's good? What's bad? What we definitely know is true. What we definitely know isn't true. And we also have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind that's made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in. Keeping us in conflict. Keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility. Keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three currents. Three very basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical, virtuous conduct, the current of samadhi or samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, Mm -hmm. and the current of pāṇya the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. Carry us to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, possibly including states of deeply absorbed concentration jhana, are beautiful, healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal. That of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena. Parting the veil. Untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. So that we recognize the nature of things. Recognize ultimate reality. And awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later after the story that I've just shared about the Buddha's life took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, i just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing the talk this evening I'd like to offer you a poem by Mary Oliver that speaks to this evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet quite moving way. She titled this poem Such Singing in the Wild Branches It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float to be myself a wing or a tree and I began to understand what the bird was saying and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was a thrush for sure but it seemed not a single thrush but himself and all his brothers and sisters and also the trees around them as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.